Hi, this is Paul Donison, and this is Confronting Our Idols, our Lenten podcast, which is a companion to our printed devotional. Each week, we'll be asking questions about various idols, and this podcast is meant to help unpack a little bit more of the detail and get you thinking. So the first idol we begin looking at is the idol of money. And this is an easy place to start because most people, when they think of idols, will make the connection with money. I remember as a former atheist, one of my major criticisms of Christianity was all that the church wants is my money. And as I became a Christian, what I realized, in fact, what Jesus wants from me is not my money. He, in fact, wants everything. He wants to literally invade my whole life and give me new life. And so money, though, is so often the thing that's in the way. And that's why the Bible talks so much about money. Money comes up so many times throughout the whole of the scriptures, and Jesus spends a lot of time talking about money. Um, there's warnings again and again in scripture about what money can do to us. I, I think of First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered far away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This concept of money being an idol, again, is not hard for us to comprehend, this thing that we put our trust in. If you look back to the Old Testament, one of the examples of this is, is looking at the Ten Commandments, where you see in the, in the final commandment, this commandment against not coveting your neighbor's iPhone 11. Um, well, his stuff, right? I mean, I, 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 we're all guilty of this. I got my iPhone 11, you know, I, I think, but I don't have an iPhone 11 Pro or an iPhone 11 Max Pro. We're always looking at others and what they have and comparing ourselves. And so we have to pay attention to this idea of covetousness and how it connects with this idol of money. Um, Colossians chapter 3, Paul actually links coveting as an idol when he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Again, as we've referenced each week, we're going to look at a connection with our catechism to be a Christian. And when you look in that numbered catechism, number 353, under this question of coveting, it asks the question, why do you covet? And the answer in the catechism is, I covet because I do not trust God to provide what I need. And I do not remain content with what I have. Rather, I persist in envy and desire. Again and again, at the root of our coveting, at the root of this idolatrous connection with money, is this question of what makes me feel safe and secure. And if the answer is not God, ultimately, and, and that's not spiritualizing things, that's saying, oh, oh, I know the Sunday school answer is always, you know, Jesus. But in a deep, profound way, as we're facing the challenges of life, sure, we want these good things around us that, that do provide a sense of safety and security, our homes, uh, our, our finances, our income, our, our positions, all those things are good things from God. Again, idols are always, almost always good things that we've corrupted. But at the end of the day, is that really where we find our trust and our hope? Is that really where we place our trust? You know, as we're facing a change at work, as we're facing a, a diagnosis, as we're facing a challenge with a child. We have all kinds of different mechanisms at our fingertips to try and deal with that. But at the end of the day, do we get brought to our knees in prayer, ultimately believing the only one that can really fix this and the only one I can find real security in at the end of the day truly is God. See, that's why this, this idol of money has to get 
get looked at, has to be examined this week because there is so much uh, of this covetousness within us. And just to be clear, you know, as I think about the idol of money and covetousness and greed and all the rest— Let's just be clear that it doesn't always have to look like lavish living. I mean, it's easy uh, to be in the car lines uh, and 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 be comparing yourself with the car in front of you and saying, you know, I, I know what my monthly payment is, and wow, that 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 person's got a, a monthly payment on their car that's like five times my payment. I mean, there's some easy examples of lavish examples, and we can easily point fingers and say, oh, look at that lavish living. That's a picture of clearly greed and idolatry. But you know, it actually this sense of covetousness and this idol of money can be very present actually in frugality. The, the miserliness uh, of the world can also be a sign of our attachment and addiction to money. Uh, you know, the greatest example of that is Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol, right? A Christmas Carol, uh, Charles Dickens portrays this, this, this man of, of, of deep, deep frugality, um, who, who's just miserly and holds everything to himself and barely even spends money on himself, but it's all because of his great love for money or probably, depending on how you read Dickens, his fear of the world, his, his, his belief that this is the only thing that will give him security in the world. So again, lavish living doesn't have to be the evidence that you're addicted and, and an idol worshiper to your money. Um, you can be very frugal. You can be very controlled with your money. But again, you've got to ask the question, am I putting my trust there? The question we need to ask, obviously, is, is ultimately, if Jesus is in the business of helping us smash idols and be freed from them, then how do we begin dealing with the idol of money? Uh, I think Jesus is really clear, probably the most, most clear, brutally honest, challenging passage uh, in the Sermon on the Mount is not when he talks about lust, not when he talks about adultery, not when he talks about not being judgmental. I think the most challenging section is at the end of Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus talks about money. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, uh, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, it's interesting at the end of verse 24 where it says you cannot serve God and money— that's an actual interpretation choice that most Bibles make. The, I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and they choose to translate the word mammon as money. And that's a good interpretation because for most people, their mammon is money. And that is seemingly what Jesus is pointing mostly to. But what's interesting, again, talking about the broader concept of idols here, mammon, again, doesn't just connect with money. The word mammon, some have argued, is actually... The focus there of how do you understand what Jesus means by mammon here is by looking at the root of that word, which is the word root ammon, uh, which means that in which we put our trust. You know, that you cannot love God and anything else in which you put your trust. Notice Jesus doesn't say, um, you know, you shouldn't do it. You know, naughty, naughty, don't do that. Uh, but in fact, Jesus says, you can't. You just can't. You can't love God and love mammon. You can't have something else you're putting your trust in and still be truly loving God. Um, so when you look again then at, at this concept of money and mammon and understand again that what Jesus is really getting at is this sense of our trust, putting our trust in our possessions, our, our trust in our money, then we can begin to see the effect of money as an idol in our lives. 
There's a couple things that happen uh, with mammon, and I, I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this uh, in literature. We certainly see it in Bible stories, and I've seen it in the lives of many believers. When we serve mammon, and, and again, just that reminder from last week's podcast, that, that this idea of idols, idols don't mean that you've like done away with God and you're literally bowing down at some image, or even if you take the figurative idol of money that you've, you've jettisoned God. No, you can be a God-fearer. You can be following Jesus but see these idols be creeping in at the margins of your life, just beginning to obscure your view of God, right? And so this idea that that mammon is stuff that's not necessarily completely taking over your life, but is creeping in at the margins and more and more in time will obscure your focus and devotion on God. And so as we serve mammon, right, as we serve mammon, one of the things that happens is we become less human, right? Anything um, that we trust in less than God is, is beneath our dignity. If you can imagine this idea of being made in the image of God, what it really means is that we, if you can hear this, you are so complex and beautiful and, and, and intricately made as, as the pinnacle of creation in this Genesis 1 and 2 made in the image of God um, concept. Even though you're fallen, even though you're broken, we're, we're sinners saved by grace, but even so, because we're made in the image of God at a, at a fundamental DNA level, we will never be satisfied worshiping anything other than God himself. Only God has the beauty and complexity and glory and perfection that is worthy of our worship and our attention. And so anytime we find ourselves worshiping something else, following something else, trusting something else, we actually become less of what God made us to be. We become less human. And I think probably the best uh, example of this, which is horrifying, especially for people who have this in their own lives or in the lives of loved ones, is when you look at addiction. When you see a human being addicted, what is what is horrifying about that is you see this 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 creature, the pinnacle of creation, made in the image of God, standing in absolute submission, right being submitted to the creation itself, the, the creation over which we're meant to rule, that we're meant to rule alongside Christ. Suddenly, we've now become in bondage. We're, we're in bondage. We're enslaved to a, a part of creation. And, and what happens is we see how this glorious creature, this human being, has now been, been broken down and become a horror and, and I think the example in literature is when you think of Gollum in, in The Lord of the Rings and in uh, The Hobbit. We were watching The Hobbit uh, just this last weekend with the girls. Uh, our, our, our second youngest just was reading The Hobbit in seventh grade. And so we decided we would download all three of The Hobbit films. I mean, why Peter Jackson had to make three films out of a book that's that small just shows how much Hollywood wants to make money off of us. Um, but again, fascinating, fabulous cinematography and the rest. And we watch the Hobbit films again. And as, we, as we're as looking at it again, you see Gollum. This, and for those of you who are, aren't reading Lord of the Rings, um, shame on you. I, I, you you've you've got you've to read at least or watch the films um, because there's so much there that Tolkien unpacks and these great epic stories. But in that Gollum character, you see, I think, probably the best example in literature of someone who is in bondage to something a true effect of addiction. And so the ring, the ring of power is what Gollum is addicted to. And he's become a, he's he's devolved into less of a a 
creature of dignity. Um, Gandalf says this about Gollum. He says, and now the ring has drawn Gollum here. He's speaking now in uh, the Lord of the Rings books, but he says, now the ring has drawn Gollum here. He will never be rid of his need for it. He hates and loves the ring. What a phrase. He hates and loves the ring as he hates and loves himself. Smeagol, which was Gollum's name before he got corrupted. Smeagol's life is a sad story. Yes, Smeagol, he was once called before the ring found him, before it drove him mad. So part of us addressing the question of any idol in our life is recognizing what it will do to us. But let's look at money specifically, how money will make us less human as we worship it. And also just to be clear, let's look at what quickly what, what happens to the thing that we have turned into an idol, right? Whatever we turn into mammon, whatever we turn to trust, and in this case, money, eventually it will fail us because we're asking this thing to do what it cannot do. We're asking it to be um, omniscient and omnipresent and 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 immutable. We're, we, we, we might write, in God we trust on our bills, but the truth is we treat it like the almighty buck. But it's not, I mean, our money, our savings accounts, whether you're talking about Bernie Madoff schemes, whether you're talking about the rise and the fall in the market, the challenge we're facing again and again is you can work as hard as possible to make your money and your future secure and your finances, and and it's not secure, right? Was it was it um, was it Rothschild? Was it Rothschild who said? Um, is it Rothschild, or if it wasn't Rothschild, it's one of the other sort of like big epic figures in finance, you know, said years ago, you know, if I just have, a, you know, one more million, right? That even someone who has so much is, is still yearning for something more to find that real sense of security. See, we're trusting in money to do what it cannot do for us. And as a result, what happens is when it fails, when the market drops, right? When we lose that job that we think secures everything for us, when we go through a rough patch, when when the roof uh, has a has a, a hailstorm in Dallas, and um, you know the insurance company we worked with um, had some fine print that meant that we couldn't actually put the claim in properly, and now we're dipping into our kids' tuition to pay for it. No, that actually has not happened to me. I'm I'm speaking hypothetically, but seriously, when those kind of unforeseeable events happen, all of a sudden we then say about that idol, that money idol. You know, you failed me. And 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 again, that's a, that Gollum idea of like he hates and loves the ring. So we hate and love our money because it turns around and fails us. And we start saying, what a stupid investment strategy, what a stupid um, you know, job I have, what a what a, what a stupid, stupid firm I work for, what a stupid insurance policy I took out, you know, whatever it may be, we begin hating the thing that we've trusted because we've asked it to be God for us. Now, as we unpack what Jesus is saying to us about money about recognizing that, that we just, we can't trust and said so we need to trust God. And, and, and let me just say one thing about that and then I'm, I'm gonna get to the, the application for uh, our discipline each week. Um, again, remember, one, two, two things actually. First, that idols are always, almost always good things that we corrupt. So again, what we're not doing here is getting down on money. I mean, we wanna be frugal, not frugal in, in an obsessive way, but we wanna be smart. We wanna be good stewards if you wanna use, use biblical language. We want to be smart with what God has given us, good stewards. Um, and so, again, remember that money in itself is not a bad thing at all. It can be used for so much good. But the question is, how do we turn it into something we trust? How do we turn it into mammon? That's the problem. But the second thing is just remember that as far as learning to trust and find your security, again and again, we have to come back to the gospel. 
right? Jesus has given us proof. God the Father has given us proof that we can trust him with our lives. And I know I quote it all the time, but I'll quote it again. Romans 8, 31 um, is, I think, just such a central word that I cling to in my hardest moments. Because Romans 8, 31 says this, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not give us all things? Right? It, it ties right in with that Matthew 6 idea of seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. This, this, this commitment and this belief, we're not, God is not asking us to trust him blind. God has given us proof that we can trust him with our lives, with our families, with everything we have, our futures, because he's given us this picture of the cross. And that's, as we're in Lent, this is what we're looking at. We're we're walking towards the cross. And that cross is the symbol and the demonstration of God's love for us. And so, there's our security. So, each week, one thing we're doing is we're giving you a practice to to step into. Uh, Because again, part of it, Lent, you know, we often talk about giving things up for Lent, but then it's not just about giving things up, but also adding things in adding a good discipline in, in the place of something you're giving up is the point. And so this week, the discipline, the holy habit, we are recommending to you to combat this particular idol of money is almsgiving. Now, almsgiving, again, isn't just being charitable, but almsgiving has traditionally always been thought of as a practice of giving money to the poor, to those in need. And um, this is true. I, I would argue it actually is a broader uh, interpretation, because the word that's used for almsgiving in the New Testament has at its root um, the word elios, which is the word mercy. And so really what almsgiving is, is it's mercy giving. It's, it's specifically using your money. And yes, you can use your time and your talents as well, but I'm going to focus, let's, let's focus on the money part of it now. Taking our money and using it as an act of mercy towards those who need some mercy shown to them. Consider a couple things we could do as, as, as acts of almsgiving, of mercy giving with our money this week. Um, you could uh, serve. I mean, there's some time and talents part of this. You could serve at a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen or a food bank. I mean, just Google it, literally. Look up f- food bank, look up um, homeless shelter, soup kitchen, call them up and say, hey, I, I, maybe you serve there already, but if you don't, just call up and say, hey, I'd love to come in. If you've got kids, maybe say, hey, I'd like to bring my kids in. Is there something we can do to serve? Just just pick one day a week uh, or in this season of Lent to, to practice this idea of almsgiving. Another ask, act of almsgiving is, you know, consider sponsoring a child through Compassion International. At our Mardi Gras event, we'll be doing that, um, having an opportunity to actually be sponsoring kids in Bumbogo Parish, which is um, where we're building our preschool this year in Rwanda. But also um, the following Sunday, we're going to have some more compassion folders available at church. So again, sponsor kid, $38 a month. Um, that's, a, that's a long-term commitment, but it's a small commitment for most of us uh, when you consider the environment we live in. So consider that that's an act of mercy, almsgiving. Um, uh, consider how what you're going to give to the Rwanda Preschool and Nutrition Project this year. For those of you who aren't aware of this, you can go on our website and find all about this uh, initiative we began last year, partnering with the province of Rwanda, uh, building preschools and nutrition programs. And it's something that we're passionate about. Uh, and I'll actually be traveling to Rwanda uh, in a couple of weeks with some parishioners to see uh, the, the the effect and, and the, the build that, that happened last year. More importantly, see the kids in the school uh, that are, are now uh, being educated and being fed um, 
through this this very small uh, project that we're able to do here. Um, but but also, here's the last thing I'll give you is just a suggestion. Make sure you've got some cash in your wallet, you know, small bills perhaps, and find opportunities to give it away. Um, my wife does this thing that, you know, for, for a number of years we've argued about and um, like we've gone back and forth. I mean, lovingly argued about it, but where she makes sure she has cash on her when someone has a need, someone asks for money on the street, someone, you know, there's an opportunity that comes up to give, she just gives money. Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, I'm almost a bit ashamed to say, I used to really sort of get on her case about this. And I'm like, listen, you're not really dealing with the systemic poverty issues here. And there's like deeper roots here and, and, and you're just feeding addiction and the rest. And, and you may have said those same things. And I'm not saying those aren't legitimate arguments to make, but here's how my wife would respond always. She said, listen, I understand that there's big systemic problems that need to get dealt with. And I'm glad that we're able to support agencies that are doing that. But in this moment, in this very moment, here's a human being in front of me asking for something. And unless I've got a big red flag in front of me that says, this is a bad idea, you know, I'm going to err on the side of generosity and mercy. And at that point, give them something. Human, just even to identify and help them recognize that I recognize that they're a human being. And ultimately, I have to say, and I'm, I'm sort of doing this publicly on podcasts, so I don't think I've ever actually said this to my wife uh, face-to-face, so she'll hear this when she hears it. I think she's right. I think she wins the argument that that you can do both. You can work to combat poverty through larger initiatives that get to the root of the problem, but you can also give what's in your pocket right now to a fellow human being, right? So again, these are big issues, and if you want to talk that further, that's why we've got clergy at the church. Come and see us. Now again, um, Jesus is in the business of freeing us from idols, we, we've looked at this idol of money today, and again, uh, you know, I, I know we're hitting it from multiple levels, and through the week, you're going to be looking at different aspects to examine your life. But the bottom line for me is this. My prayer is that you examine your idols this week, specifically around money, that you and I together are able to repent of those idols as we have them shown to us by the Lord, and that we are able to combat them through merciful almsgiving. My prayer is that you and I together are able to smash some idols this week. So I hope you pick up your copy of our Lenten devotional, Confronting Our Idols at Church, or you can download uh, the devotional online at christchurchplano.org slash Lent. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.